Welcome to Hanks for the Memories. You've got a friend in us. This is episode 41, Angels and Demons, from 2009. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And Mike, today we have reassembled our team. Even though Tom Hanks has a new sidekick in each of these movies, we figured we'd keep our two sidekicks the same throughout all three of these movies that we're doing. Back from The Da Vinci Code, we have the newest host on the Cage Club podcast now, we're the host of Hard to Believe, Mr. John Brooks. Hello, John. Hello. And with us also, his guest on the Centurion, the Ninth Legion episode of Hard to Believe, she is our book expert, our literature expert, the creator, the brainchild behind Unicorn Musings. We have Jess Collins. Hello, Montez. Hey, how's it going? Very well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, both of you, to talk about Angels and Demons. Now, Mike, we said it last time on the Da Vinci Code episode that pretty much everybody knows what the the Da Vinci Code is about. I don't know that that's necessarily true of Angels and Demons, although I do think that most people who read the one read the other. Most people who saw the one movie saw the other. I don't know for sure. But please, before we get into this discussion about Angels and Demons, please hit us with a plot summary Please and thank you. I will do the best I can. The Pope is dead. The Pope is dead. This is how the movie starts. The Pope has died. It might be murder. We're not sure. At the same time, we flash to the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, where a jar of antimatter's been stolen. It's been taken by someone who's gone rogue in the church. He's kidnapped the four cardinal pillars of the Vatican and is holding them hostage and will execute one an hour until midnight, where he will release the antimatter bomb at the Vatican. And it is up to none other than Robert Langdon to stop this all. Yes, the Vatican comes knocking. They enlist Langdon to come to Italy and help them solve this crime. Who has kidnapped the cardinals, who has stolen the antimatter, who has created the bomb. Help us, help us save the day through your symbology expertise. He meets Ewan McGregor, who is like the Pope's number one guy. He says, it's the Illuminati. They've come out of hiding after the church drove them underground. It's their pesky science and the God particle. It's all their fault. It's science versus religion this time around in the Robert Langdon universe. He goes around, he goes to the Vatican vault into the library to find some clues with the Dr. Vittoria from the CERN Institute. He teams up with Stellar Skateboard, Stellan Skarsgård, who is the head of Swiss security at the Vatican. John, you're going to have to explain that to me a little bit. You know, they're going after all these churches. They're trying to find all the cardinals. They get to each of them like right when it's too late. One of them's burned. One of them has the wind knocked out of them. One of them is drowned. It's earth, wind, fire, and water. Everything comes to a head when it seems that it's Stellar Skateboard, who is the one in charge of it all. He has come down on Ewan McGregor, who has pleaded to the church to tell the public it's the Illuminati who is trying to take over, and they want all their freedoms of science against religion. So in the end, what ends up basically happening is Ewan McGregor helps Langdon find the bomb. He takes it into a helicopter high above Vatican City, jumps out with a parachute right when the antimatter bomb explodes, somehow not creating a black hole and killing everybody on the planet. But it was all a ruse because it turns out Ewan McGregor was in fact the man behind it all. He was leaving the clues. He was leaving the riddles. He was the Riddler after all. He was the one who framed the Illuminati. And right when he thinks he's going to become the new Pope, they're like, nope, we caught you. And he runs down to the basement of the church and sets himself on fire. That's the end of him. And at the end, Langdon <laughs> is witness to the new Pope being crowned and he goes out to greet a huge CGI crowd and the movie ends. But that's the best I could do. Aside from the fact that you have like 20 more movies to recap than I did for Cruise Club, I will never again complain about the complicated Cruise movies because you have these three movies to explain and you did a, you did a better job. You did an admirable job because I don't even know where I would begin with this because there's a whole lot of crazy going on in this movie. I do want to take offense to both Montez and John, who told me this was a better movie than The Da Vinci Code. I do not think that's true. Oh, it is. <laughs> it's maybe a more cohesive story because it's a smaller story, but like, I think it's more boring. I don't think it's interesting. I think The Da Vinci Code has that like manic, literally what is going to happen next. I cannot tell you what's going to happen next. This, you kind of have a straightforward narrative. So I guess in that way, technically it's better. Yeah, I was not a fan of this movie, believe it or not. So now, John, please lead off with why do you think this is a better movie than The Da Vinci Code? And what is your favorite part of Angels and Demons? Okay, well, I 
I would probably say that part of it is my bias towards Rome itself. I just, I love Rome and it's beautifully shot Rome. So I just aesthetically, like I, I certainly, it's prettier to look at than the Da Vinci Code is. It's also, it moves along at a faster pace. It's it's sort of breathless in a way that the Da Vinci Code is like a long art history lecture. And I enjoy that. From a religious studies perspective, it gets less stuff egregiously wrong than the Da Vinci Code. Like it, it makes up less shit, although it makes up a lot. And I'll get to that later on. Well, like antimatter isn't on Earth. They get the science part wrong and the religion part wrong. But aside from that, everything is, is fine. I like the plot twist. I think that's, it's one of those rare times that like, it almost makes all the bullshit that happened before kind of okay with me because it turns out that it was all of a, all a hoax. We can talk more about that as well. My favorite part of the movie is actually when I forgot before rewatching it, which is when Langdon is trapped with the assistant Swiss guard guy and whatever he, I don't know, who, whatever he is, the guy who smokes, and that's his whole character arc is that he's a smoker. And they're trapped in the archives and the lights go out and everything, they're locked in there and there's no oxygen. And I'm, I'm claustrophobic. And so that's like my nightmare. So, so that scene was pretty, it's pretty thrilling. I like the way that like Langdon like shoots at the glass. <laughs> it's just a, it's a rare kind of like weirdly badass moment for him. For him or for Tom Hanks? So I feel like for both of them, I'm just like, I don't like Tom Hanks shooting a gun. That looks weird. Yeah, I know. It's why I like the scene, though, because it stands out in a, scene, in a movie that is otherwise fairly rote in its character arcs. But again, there's a lot of reasons why I think this is a better movie than The Da Vinci Code. If you don't have a lot of background knowledge to either one, I can see why The Da Vinci Code, which deals with something much bigger, is more engaging. But it's it's a lot more bullshit, although there's a lot of bullshit to Angels and Demons for sure. But I just think it's better on every front. Okay. Now, Montez, what about you? I believe... Leave, and I don't want to pen you in with John here if I misremember, but I believe you also said that you like this movie more than The Da Vinci Code. So either tell me that I'm wrong or defend yourself. And also, what is your favorite part of this movie? My favorite part is that Tom Hanks got a haircut. <laughs> <laughs> and I will be honest, I'm going to side with Joey for the first time ever. Wow. Oh, guess what? By the way, I just bought Legend on Blu-ray. So at least we have that in common now. So exciting. So I think I'm going to side with you. So in the past 24 hours, I have watched this movie twice. That is one too many times. I, some might argue two, two too many times, but go on. Because each time that I've watched it now, I can't remember a damn thing about it. <laughs> I've watched it twice. I even paused it every time I left the room today so that I could make sure that I didn't miss a thing. And I think that I like the book better. I remember liking the book better too. I don't remember yeah. the book now, but I remember back then, you know, in 2000, I was going to say back in like 2003, 2005, I remember really liking The Da Vinci Code, but I remember loving this book. I don't remember anything about either of them other than everything is obsessively detailed and over-explained, but I remember loving this book. Yeah, so I really liked this book. I also saw this movie in the theater, so I paid full price to go see this movie and I really liked the movie when I saw it in the theater after I read the book and I think the fact that I saw it right after I read the book is why I like the movie better then. I think now, because I'm so far removed from having read the book, I think I still like The Da Vinci Code better. So Mike, what about you? you? You have not read the book. I believe that you have not seen the movie yet. You watched this for the first time. Are you with John? Are you a fan of this movie to a certain extent? Like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I didn't say I was a fan of the movie. Like, let's not put words into my mouth. Do you find perverse joy in watching this movie? Are you on the right side of history? or do you side with John? <laughs> I hate this movie. You texted me multiple times while watching this movie, which you don't <laughs> normally do. Yeah, that's a rare thing. It's like, it's usually for cool stuff too. It's like, I'm loving this or something. And this time it's just like, what, why? Like, this might be my least favorite franchise that I've ever started watching. Like, I'm going to have to suffer through Inferno. Jesus. Like, third time to charm, baby. I don't think so. Look, like, I mean... I will agree that sort of structurally and as a, from a filmmaking standpoint, it is better than the last one. Like there's way less nonsense as far as uh, bullshit clues and sort of all that kind of crap. Like we're not taking infinite steps, you know, to walk five miles like this. Like the last movie, I feel like we were walking for days and we only needed to walk around the block. This one is much quicker, much more streamlined, mainstream, all that kind of stuff. And so I at least appreciate that. 
but I totally hate the whole concept of the science versus religion. Like, I think that that is so heavy handed in this. And, and yeah. my main concern comes from the stuff that I think John was taking issue with sort of the first time what they were doing with religion, they are now doing with science. And this bullshit about the Large Hadron Collider being able to create antimatter, I can't. Like, why would they fucking do that? It's creating needless propaganda for something that's already controversial in the first place, yet necessary in the in this science community and stuff. And so, like, that really stuck a thorn in my side from the start. And I had a lot of trouble getting rid of it throughout the entire movie. And just nonstop lies about the Illuminati. I mean, like, just made-up bullshit about the Illuminati. It's ridiculous. And it's so easily debunked. For people fans of fonts, like, they make ambigrams out to be, like, something that is, like, an evil thing. It's like, no, it's just, it's just, a, it's a, it's a thing. It's not, doesn't have meaning. It's literally a cool thing. Yeah. And speaking yeah. of Illuminati, like, this is national treasure all over again. Again, like, instead of the Freemasons, it's the Illuminati. And instead of making shit up about that, we're doing it about this. And, you know, and it's just, right. like, it's too much this time around for me to really do anything. The, the one thing I did sort of like, though, is I would have really loved to have seen Ewan McGregor play the Riddler because there's no way he wasn't guilty from the minute I saw him. Like, yeah. he had this fucking look in his eye. I'm like, he is a really good villain here. I wish they sort of played him up more as is he or isn't he because it's not a question at all. I think my favorite part is basically like Robert Langdon had to fight the Riddler in this movie. He left like these really elaborate riddles about the Illuminati and like around Vatican and Roman stuff that he had to follow. And so like that to me was probably like my favorite thing, but the rest of it, I just like, oh boy. That's the thing though, too, is that the one thing I like about the movie is that at the end, it's revealed that McKenna has been staging the entire thing and just like made up the Illuminati. But it also casts Robert Langdon as this like absolute idiot who believes all this bullshit, right? Like he's the one who's like, oh no, the like Galileo was a member of, like, no, he wasn't. The Illuminati was a hundred years after Galileo. What are you fucking talking about? And like, he believes all this conspiracy theory theory bullshit and McKenna's character like feeds off of that and makes up this fake war between science and religion just so he can advance himself to Pope. It's cool at the end when Dan Brown's like haha it's all bullshit right and it's like yeah but it is all bullshit and you've built your entire plot around there's a grain or a lot of truth to the bullshit that you're now admitting with your villain was bullshit the entire time. It's just Dan Brown just sucks at writing so bad. <laughs> it really is bad. It's remarkable because everything here can be done without the Illuminati. Exactly. Or without Robert Langdon. Exactly. Or without antimatter. Just have a terrorist steal a bomb and a bunch of cardinals. What the fuck? And that's why I like this movie more, because I can still see a movie here without all the bullshit. The Da Vinci Code, there's no movie without the bullshit, right? Unless you have all the made-up crap, there's no movie. Here, there's a movie. You don't need to lie as much as you lie, Dan Brown. There's a good story to be told here, but you're just not able to tell it because you're just coming up with a whole bunch of absolute nonsense about the Illuminati. You can look it up. It's not true. Like, it, we know when the Illuminati began. It was 1775. It was not the 1600s. Like, that is fake. I feel like the fact that you think that it's so close to being a better movie makes it a better movie, but, like, that just makes me more angry. The fact that it could be fixed and it isn't is just infuriating. Yeah, but again, I still like a lot of the elements, and I, I still think that the general conspiracy theory that, or or the or the sort of um, trick, the facade that Ewan McGregor's character puts on is clever. Like, I, and I like it, and I like the idea that it's like the whole premise of the movie is all of this is bullshit. It's it's just that getting there doesn't quite work, and it's so clumsy and and Dan Browny. But again, the payoff to me is more interesting. I also I like you know the whole papal conclave thing. I like I like the religious drama to it. I like the echoes of old religious figures that are actually accurate. Oh yeah, there's scenes in here that feel like Godfather 3, you know, and I'm like, pump that up. Well, a pope was killed in the Godfather 3 also, right? Yeah. Yeah. Will you think of any more or less of this movie to find out that Akiva Goldsman was paid a record $3.8 million to write the screenplay? Well, and David Coop had to fucking help him. Akiva Goldsman and David Coop are the two biggest fucking hacks in Hollywood. I mean, those are the names of people who were like, well, we couldn't find anybody who actually wanted to write the screenplay, so we hired these two guys who notoriously write shit in 10 days, and that's like what they're paid for. And David Coop had to help Akiva Goldsman write this. To your point from the last episode, 
though, like the book itself is written like a screenplay. Like, how do you have difficulty to adapting it? It's not hard. Yeah, exactly. I like two things about this. Number one, I like that I looked up that the new Sophie, I didn't even bother to learn her name, Victoria Vetra, right? The new Sophie <laughs> apparently played Superman's mother in Man of Steel. I thought that was kind of cool. And number two, I, I feel like this movie actually does a pretty good reversal. Like, it feels like you hire Stellar Skateboard to be your villain. And the fact that he's not the villain here, I was like, oh, because I wrote down five minutes of the movie. I'm like, whenever you first see him, I'm like, there's no way he's not the bad guy, right? Because I didn't remember the story. And then, like, I wrote when I said, basically as soon as you see Ewan McGregor, like, there's no way he's not the bad guy either. Like, what like what you said earlier, Mike, like, they're both, like, so clearly the bad guy. But I felt like I had noticed, I had picked up on something shady about Stellar Skateboard first. And I was like, oh, it's got to be him. And then the fact that it's not, I was like, that's actually kind of effective storytelling, but I don't, I don't know. But who is he? He's just security. What is, what is the Swiss Guard's relation to the Vatican? Well, I want to get there, but first I want to know, like, he's only <laughs> here as a red herring for you, Joey. Like, that's the reason his character exists. Like, hey, man, I'm into it. He's the third guy in the same role in this movie. There's three of them. There's the blonde dude who's all, he's the only guy that Hanks needs to get access anywhere around the Vatican. He's the only guy he really needs. But then we have the guy with the goatee, who's like Italian Sam Jackson looking from Pulp Fiction. He's the same exact guy. And then we have Stellar skateboard and he's the third same guy just make it one or the other to the whole movie and i would have loved to have seen hanks and skateboard running around the vatican together like that would have been fun i think you're supposed to interpret the armin Mueller stahl character as the bad guy that that was always what stood out to me is that he's the sort of like the guy who's making this kind of shady underhand move to make himself eligible to become pope you know is coy about a lot of details or whatever that sort of thing and and i i thought that was the red herring not stellan scars but I don't know. Interesting. Yeah, he does look kind of evil. And he, he's the guy at the end who becomes the new number two. And at the end, I was even like, he's still sticking around. But yes, John, can you go in just like quickly, just for myself, maybe, or whoever's listening that's concerned, like, why is the Swiss guard guarding the... I know that the Vatican is like a state within the state and everything, and it's got its own jurisdiction. But why is... Switzerland in charge or why they have such a strong presence? So this goes back to before Italy was Italy, before it was the peninsula was just one big country. And so Switzerland is, you know, just to the north of Italy. So basically what was going on is that in the 15th century, this is the rise of like the Medici's and the and the Borgias and, you know, all of these kind of moneyed families who are basically serving as as war like mafiosos, like warlords, right? They they have their own territories they want to expand. So you have like the Florentines, right, as basically its own the Florentines like their own their own country. Anyway, so uh, the Vatican had or rather I should say the, the Pope had what was called the Papal States. It was a large swath of Italy that was controlled by the church and was was given to the Pope. Towards the end of the Middle Ages, so in the 1400s, you started to see the rise of sort of autonomous powers throughout Europe, whereas for about a thousand years or so, at least prior to the Crusades, it was pretty stagnant in terms, like, so So the church basically was the kingmaker, and, and they had a lot of political control over the various kingdoms of Europe. But following the Crusades, you had a lot more sort of economic stagnation. So you had certain places that were becoming very wealthy and certain that were becoming poorer, so stronger and weaker and that sort of thing. And so you start to see the rise of various factions who want to control more territory. And and this meant that the Papal States themselves were vulnerable. What the, the church did was formed an alliance with Switzerland because Switzerland is basically a bulwark. If you can't take Switzerland, you can't take anywhere in Italy. And, and also by uniting the Papal States with Switzerland, they also created basically a cushion between themselves and the Florentines. And so, so the Swiss and, and the Vatican created basically an alliance. So after the Italian wars ended in the 1500s, so this all started with a guy named Pope Sixtus IV, which is a great name for a pope. He formed this alliance in the beginning of the Italian wars. Once Italy took shape as more of a unified culture throughout the Renaissance, basically what happened was when the Italian wars dissipated, a detachment of this of the Swiss military stayed with the Pope permanently. I think it started with twelve of them under like pretty sure it was Pope Julius the second. Kind of like the Knights of the Pope. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. And so it's basically a um they they're an autonomous 
organization, and they have had had an alliance with the Vatican ever since. And so because the Vatican can't have its own army, but does need to be protected, it is a, itself a country. So like it needs some sort of military guard, but it can't use the Italian military to guard it, right? Because it's not part of Italy. So the Swiss have this 500-year-old relationship with the Vatican, and that's why they still wear that Renaissance garb. Like they still dress as though they're in the 16th century because it goes back to that time and it's been a, a nonstop sort of permanent uh, alliance. That's interesting. I wish we got just like a little more into that in the movie, just like a line or two for people <laughs> like me who just don't, don't know that history. And also, if you want to uh, give me your Vimmo or something, I should give you a couple bucks for that history lesson there. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to the lots of non-history about the Illuminati. (laughs) We've almost canceled out what I've forgotten out of stupidity from watching it. No offense to John, I feel like there's a long way to go to cancel it out, to bring it back to to even. I want to be clear, I don't like this movie. I just think it's better than The Da Vinci Code. That's all I'm saying. I just wish Montez was like a theoretical physicist and she could just like go more into (laughs) atom smashing and, you know, particle acceleration and stuff. Can we just talk about the whole notion that the misrepresentation of the notion of the god particle in in this movie? The god particle is not called the God particle because it proves or denies the existence of God, which is one of the cornerstones of the plot of this movie. It's called the God particle, and I'm not making this up. It's called the God particle because the publisher of one of the first books about Higgs boson particle and the search for it, using colliders basically to create it, one of the first books and one of the earliest pioneers of this field, he wanted to call his book the goddamn particle, because it's so elusive, it's so hard to find, and it's so hard to prove the existence of. And the publisher was like, eh, let's go with God particle. And it's like, fine, whatever. So it has nothing to do with this particle having anything to do with God or religion or anything else. It merely was literally a publisher saying, no, we want to call it this. Well, John, you know, when you're writing a book, you don't have a lot of time to read beyond the headline of things sometimes, and it's hard to actually get into why things are called things. You're just like, oh, God particle, I got, I, I get it. And funny thing, this movie came out in 09, right? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. The God particle was discovered three years later, and the Roman Catholic Church did not collapse as a result of it. So it's also mentioned in Mission Impossible Three for a minute there. Already familiar with it, and already knew that it had nothing to do with sort of proving the existence of God, which seems to be Ewan McGregor's big problem, which is like he gets into an argument with the Pope, and he's like, if they find the God particle, it'll destroy like everything we stand for. Dan Brown doesn't know what the god particle is but then why then ewan mcgregor steals science to prove the church wrong it's like like that's what's so confusing like he's using the antimatter so like does he think that's the god particle and then so i'm so confused (laughs) i like that selena meyer's husband is in this movie can we talk about him for one second like i don't have anything else to say but i like that selena meyer's husband is in this movie who's who's that from veep i don't know it's the guy who goes from the vatican to get tom hanks plays swimming laps Yes, right, that guy. The guy who somehow has access to the Vatican's private jet that doesn't exist. The Pope flies commercial. Really? Yeah. They have all gold everything, and they don't even have a jet. Roman has a jet in Fast and Furious, and the Pope can't have a jet? (laughs) Man, oh man. Okay, flip side of the coin. I mean, it's been the last 30 minutes of this podcast. What didn't you like? Is there anything else that you don't like about this movie that we have not yet covered? Because I'm out of notes. Like, I I took a bunch of notes. We've checked off all my things, and I just, you know, I was resigned to the fact of having to watch this. Like, it's not the worst movie we've ever seen. It does kind of fly by relatively quickly. It's bad for Hanks. That is my biggest problem with it and then when i try to look beyond that i'm like this is ron howard like i know he's doing all three of these but like you'd think that like maybe he'd up his game from the last one or learn so it almost feels like he's lost a step or something like that at some points like then you'd think they'd have like this whole relationship hanks and him and everything but none of this is coming through on the screen it's like really boring actually there is one thing and i just you talking about hanks and it just reminded me is that like early in this movie tom hanks is basically like why me why do you want me and they're like dude, you literally just wrote a book about this and you just saved the world. Like, why not you? And he's like, oh, okay, I guess that makes sense. What? Or did I mishear that line? That's the justification, right? That's why they have him there. Yeah. Like, the fact that he doesn't know, it's like, why? Well, you, Of course you know. You just saved the world. Their reasoning is literally, and I quote, you are formidable. Formidable. What's well, also my favorite scene where he's like, what is the word in English for formidable? And he's like, formidable? It's the same word? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> 
there's something I just kind of realized, I think, of, um, let me see if I put this together correctly. So the whole movie is like, okay, we need Hanks because, like, isn't he writing a book about the Illuminati and he needs, like, this access to the Vatican papers and stuff? No, 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 no. He had written a book. Okay, so he already wrote the book. So it's like, I know everything about the Illuminati. We're going to bring him in. And it turns out that Ewan McGregor, like, did he make all the shit up about the Illuminati? But yeah. Hanks was going around like, this is true. That is true. Right. Like, all this right. stuff is true because I wrote a book about it and like if you think about it like Ewan McGregor was it like he trapped Langdon intentionally by like proving he's full of shit or something like was that supposed to be going if on? If Dan Brown were better at writing that's exactly what would have happened but he's not right? That's an amazing movie right? Like that should be the movie <laughs> It absolutely is like the unmasking of Harvard's beloved symbology chair as, as a fraud right because McKenna basically baits him with all of his own bullshit and then is like, oh, none of that's true. And you're like, oh, that's a fucking movie. But that like has to that has to end the Langdon trilogy and it ends it with disgrace. But you you know. Is there anything that people that any of us hate about this movie that we have not talked about yet? Montez, you haven't talked in a while. Is there anything else about this movie that drives you crazy that we have not mentioned yet? I've just been sitting here listening to how fucking mad you guys are about this movie. <laughs> like not, my God. I, I was gonna say I'm not mad. I'm not I'm just disappointed, but I'm not even disappointed. I'm just indifferent to all this. I love that John and Mike are both like furious so passionate about how angry they are it's it is something else i like this better than the <laughs> yeah, i also think it's funny that mike expected this to be a better movie i think that's the thing i didn't expect to have this emotional of a response to this either like i'm used to trashing i like garbage and i can really you know i can forgive a film because it's like a miracle that any movie really gets made let alone in theaters let alone tom hanks is your star based on a best-selling novel no there's a lot of stuff to really give movies credit for just before even watching them and i just feel like this is one of those times where they make sort of these egregious hollywood crimes and there's kind of a point where you just have to throw up your arms and like we've been saying like i can't help but see the bull like it's just it just feels like so much bullshit it just feels like oh they love the da vinci code let's just shovel anything at them they'll let's not even really try let's bring in these hacks i'm, I'm i can't believe i'm I can't, i'm listening to myself now and i can't believe i'm still going about it either i do not really get this dispassionate about film uh, that i don't like so i don't know what has come over me tonight i agree with you that i like bad movies this is just like a boring movie like this isn't i don't think this is bad in a fun way i think this is just like clumsily executed and i think it's a bummer that's another one of its crimes is why is it boring it should be exciting like this reminded me of the keanu movie where he created a cold fusion bomb by accident and the government was after remember it's like basically kind of like similar to the point where it's filled with scientific bullshit but they let you know up top this isn't possible no matter what and i think the issue here with dan brown is like he's taking these truths and he's turning them into like propaganda and stuff and it's just like, you know, like most people can tell the difference and brush it off, but there's a lot of morons who kind of can. And, you know, and I think we discussed it earlier about people who like went to Italy to or France to look for the tomb of Mary Magdalene or whatever. And it's like not there and they get all mad or whatever. So I think there's a certain amount of responsibility you have to have. One thing that I kind of appreciate is that the most egregious element of the storyline is the part that turns out to be bullshit. So a couple of things that I think are, are kind of cool and almost kind of historically insightful is, is the way that McKenna engineers his rise to the papacy feels very Renaissance. Like if, if you look at some of the way some of the Renaissance popes became pope, if they had a helicopter and an antimatter bomb, like they would have done the same thing. And so there's something something really kind of cool and interesting about that. And I think that's why I like that plot twist and why that makes me forgive a lot of the stuff in the movie that pissed me off beforehand. I do think there's something that a better writer who is more adept at subtlety could say about the still kind of looming threat and the looming tension between science and religion that McKenna is desperate to resolve at any cost, right? But not like this, right? And the way that it oversimplifies an enormous amount of history in terms of the way that art was sort of desexualized. It talks about quite a bit in the Counter-Reformation and, and the, the tension between people like Pernicus and Galileo and Bruno and the church and that the, the darkness of that history is a story that like does have some continued relevance, but certainly not in that way. Again, 
That's also not the way it turns out, because it turns out that was all bullshit. Like, the Illuminati doesn't still exist, and it was just McKenna playing to this fear. But, like, is that fear really there? Because it's not. And, like, that's the thing. Like, that's the part where his inferiority just as a storyteller and an ability to, to, to weave together, you know, actual history in a way that respects that nuance is, is just absent, and it, it just kills the story. But again, because there are threads of it that are so actually historically factual, I overlook a lot more of that than I do with the Da Vinci Code, which is just all nonsense, right? Like, it just doesn't have any bearing in, in anything. There was an Illuminati. There was no Priory of Zion. So right there, you start with something. <laughs> he just makes up a whole bunch of shit about it that's not true. But at least that secret society did, in fact, exist at one point. So that's a, a tiny step in the right direction. But yeah, there's a story to be told there, but he doesn't tell it the right way. The Catholic Church has been a patron of the sciences for a long time. It was during Galileo's day. It just had a really weird tightrope to walk, and a lot of shit happened as a result. So It's amazing, too, because it's like, oh, Galileo, it's like, you think about what he what he was proposing, it changed everything forever. It's not something everyone was behind. It took forever to sort of cut, you know what I'm saying? Like it was a, it was a dramatic, it was one of the biggest shifts in human history, right? So like, of course the church couldn't come out and directly support him publicly or anything like that. And any, so it's just weird that why would they even bring it up in this movie? Why even mention it? Why even make that part of the clues or anything if you're not going to, represent it properly or even follow it up story-wise in any sort of meaningful way. And, and Galileo is, is so lazy. I mean, Copernicus makes more sense. Bruno makes, makes way more sense. If you're going to talk about this like long-standing, simmering animosity towards the church that's somehow endured for 500 years, beyond generations, long after the church has accepted science way more than any other Christian denom denomination does, right? Or like most of Christian denominations. The people who really were opposed to the sciences were like the fucking Lutheran Puritans. Like, go after them. Like, go after Calvinists. The Catholics brought science on board to, the, to their credit. And the notion that there's this simmering hatred <laughs> because of Galileo, who fucking survived, right? After 500 years is, is silly. You know, Bruno was actually burnt at the stake for daring to challenge the, the status quo of science. So like, make it about him but like oh no audiences know who galileo is so we're just gonna say that he's the inspiration behind the illuminati and was one of the founding members of it which is again it's just so fucking lazy there's a good story to tell here but dan brown doesn't tell it i also want to bring up the thing about ambergrams but joey i kind of feel like that's one of your things on your trivia list at the end of the show that i don't want to step on no not really go for it the ambergrams are cool like it's a cool feature it's like one of the things again it's a dan brown thing it's like oh here's a thing that's dates back to the 1970s. I'm going to pretend that that's actually not true. Ambergrams have been around since the classical period. They, they are very, very old. The notion of the kind of deliberate sort of artistic ambergram that the Illuminati uses is is very new. It's it's middle, you know, it is 1970s. One of the most famous ambergrammers, and his work is really, really great, is a guy named John Langdon. So so you can go to his website. He, he has a bunch of really, really cool ambergrams. He's really, really good at doing this. But yeah, it's just a cool, like, artistic it's like a tattoo artist like it's really yeah. it's a cool style john langdon is a good friend of dan brown's dad that's who robert langdon is based on shout out easter egg but like it's but it's that sort of thing it's like dan brown's like yeah here's a cool thing i'm just gonna shove it into my bullshit story and like john langdon actually did design that that ambigram of the illuminati in the movie and also on the the cover of the book which is cool and like yeah i like that stuff like that's great but don't bring it into the plot of your movie, man. Like, it just, it's its so stupid. The Illuminati has been using this for five. No, they fucking haven't. Like, you know they haven't. It's a font from the 70s. Yeah, I also don't know if you guys knew, but Copernicus was a founding member of uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> <laughs> That's better. Yeah, I don't mind that because we all know S.H.I.E.L.D. is fucking bullshit. Like, there's no YouTube conspiracy theories about S.H.I.E.L.D., running everything right like what's to stop merlin from showing up in in inferno like i'm not even joking like that's where i feel like it's going very excited for it any other thoughts before a couple little bits of trivia play a couple games and get out of here yes i have some, i have some thoughts montez go for it last time when we were talking about da vinci code i bitched about the fact that it really irritated me that robert langdon would kind of like stroke out and like see all this shit in the sky i actually kind of missed that while i was watching this i missed like his whole like little 
Sherlock Holmes stroke out moment when he's like, oh, and like all the, you see all the pieces coming together. I think that's the one thing about this movie that makes it so difficult is I believe, if I remember correctly, I don't have this book on my shelf so I couldn't see, but I'm pretty sure Angels and Demons was a longer book than The Da Vinci Code. So I feel like there's a lot of information that we miss in this movie that would make this a better movie. And it's already a very long movie because a little more of that would have maybe suspended my disbelief of other things a little better if, you know, if we had those beautiful mind moments and like he had you know like i think last time i said he saw carcosa at one point i think and like you know the mysteries of the world all came to him and everything i feel like that's very quintessential like robert langdon and we didn't really get that and not to spoil it but we don't get that in inferno either that's like his superpower like we need to see that yeah that's how he thinks that's his perspective can i also just say like you mcgregor is fucking great in this movie that's one of the really shining points of this like he plays that so well and he's also one of those actors that's really hard to as as good as he is it's hard to forget he's Ewan McGregor but I really do in this movie like he's he he really gets into that role and and plays the sort of uh duplicitous nature of it very very well so I I will I will give the movie like this one thing as a genuinely high point well I will say that I went from watching this movie to watching Attack of the Clones so from one Ewan McGregor baller joint to another and uh, don't know which one I liked less. <laughs> well, I, look, I was saying earlier about like uh, franchises and stuff, like the the prequels blow this out of the water. In fact, over the few, over the last couple like years I've grown up a new appreciation of the prequels in general, but like for sure, like at least they feel like a collective thing. And in two movies, these two don't even feel like they're part of the same sort of series to me i mean they're just such random sort of adventures of some weirdo guy (laughs) like i don't see how they really connect that much i think from a book perspective that's what makes these books work is because you can read one without having read any of the others they're all like little like standalone adventures you know again it's also like these books just don't lend themselves to being this kind of a movie it it doesn't really work. It, it a lot of it kind of reminds me of like the Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes movies, which are fine and they're entertaining, but like that's not really Sherlock Holmes. It's there's a lot of there's a lot of headiness, and even like again like the Dan Brown mystery, like the the components of it are all complete nonsense. But there is something about it of like you solving the thing along with you know Langdon and like you know going along with his with his discoveries or whatever that is really engaging about the, the books from a, an, an airplane book sort of way that you just can't translate because the way that it translates in the movies thanks to the genius writing of Akiva Goldsman and David Coop is oh we'll just use that to like drive the plot along so every time we need to explain something to the audience we'll just have Tom Hanks talk. And that's literally what's going to happen. Like, we're just going to, he's going to say a bunch of shit and then we'll, won't have to show anything and we can just have him take us to the next scene. And like, I totally agree, by the way, that he is like, I feel bad for Hanks in this particular movie, even though I like it better because when he's not trying to escape from a oxygen deprived room, he's just saying a bunch of shit that he doesn't understand and acting excited about it (laughs) and, and is there to just move into the next scene. It's sort of ridiculous. Montez, any other thoughts before some trivia and games? Because I watched this movie twice, it really, really hurt me to my core. Yes, what's your Venmo, Montez? Because you had to sit through this <laughs> twice. Maybe I could, uh... Mike, did you just download Venmo? Because you're offering to pay John and Montez right now, so I don't know what's going on. I'm just trying to keep a, a joke running. <laughs> That's all. But Montez, you were saying? Yeah, so it pained me to my core both times that I had to watch this. When I watched her rip the paper out of the little book. Oh yes. Mm-hmm. If it, because if it was me, I don't know how he just sat there and was like, and like she took the page. He's like, yeah, okay. I would be like, no, bitch, hold on. What the fuck did you just do? I would call them in there and be like, no, forget everything else I'm doing. Take this woman to jail. She just ripped this up. This is ridiculous. The craziest thing is that they don't show it, but somehow they got out of the uh, secure library vault with the page, like presumably like stuffed in her bra, maybe. I don't know. But like there was no security check and they let him back in knowing full well that he ripped the page out of a book earlier in the day. No, but if you pay attention, he's like, no, she did it. She did do it. Yeah, it wasn't him. He, he just throws her under the bus both times. That's a classic symbologist move. Yeah. She did it. <laughs> John, what about you? Any other thoughts? Or you thought it out? 
Shit, I man, I have so many thoughts about like there's there's so much. The idea of like anybody being let into the papal conclave is f- fucking absurd. But I like I'm glad that Armin Müller-Stahl is in this. I he he should be in more movies. I really love him. So I was excited to see him. I forgot he was in it when I rewatched it, and I was like, oh yeah, the guy from Shine and the X Files. Other thoughts? No, not really. Uh, that's not how antimatter works. Uh, scientists don't wear lab coats all the time. There's no reason to wear a lab coat at CERN. Uh, <laughs> but they all do so that, you know, they're scientists. Uh, that's it. That's all I got written down. Mike? Yeah, antimatter is purely theoretical. Like, it doesn't exist in our dimension. Oh, it does. It can. Well, I mean, you cannot, like, capture it in a jar and it doesn't glow in a... No, you can't make enough to make a bomb. It would take literally billions of years to do that. But yeah. Check out The Librarian with Noah Wiley. Uh, It was like a series that was on basic cable. I think it comes back every now and again with a TV movie, but he was sort of Dan Brown, maybe more of an Indiana Jones kind of update, but he was a librarian and he apparently read every fucking book in his library because uh, he would fight all kinds of uh, historical, supernatural and interesting things. And I think that has more educational merit than these movies. I'm not really looking forward to Inferno, but you know what I'm saying? I signed up, I bought the ticket, I'm taking the ride, and you know, at least I'll be able to talk about them with everybody. Well, we have that's not for 12 more movies, Mike. So, Mike, having seen some of the librarian, like, I will say that you are right, that there is more um, actual facts to be gleaned from the librarian. And it, and it also was very clearly like a Da Vinci Code cash-in, you know, like knockoff. There's no doubt about that. But yeah, it's 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 more. I think that you could tell that maybe they wanted to do a Da Vinci Code show, but they can't really do maybe that a religion-heavy show every week. Like, there's just not enough to mine, or it's just not respectful enough. I, I want to make sure that we talk about this when we talk about Inferno, because I don't want to not talk about this but the young langdon chronicles it's going to be on amazon wait what oh i'm sorry yeah am i am i breaking news like some encyclopedia brown type shit yeah amazon apparently is is developing a a a pre-da vinci code series about like the young robert langdon read about that and we'll talk about it during inferno i don't want to talk about it right now but there's a lot of promise there because i feel like if you take dan brown out of the equation you could do some cool stuff with that i i think the the concept has merit as long as you stick to facts or at least plausibility uh in a way that dan brown doesn't I think they could take this in way less of a religious direction and it'll still work. Like you could do a whole lot of shit with symbols that have nothing to do with religion and, you know, all kinds of other stuff. So like, yeah, mind that. Yeah. Well, Mike, we're not going to get to Inferno for 12 more episodes, but I will say that back to back is Inferno and then the circle. So that's back backbreaker. But it's, it's bookended by Sully and The Post and Toy Story 4. So, like, those are three great movies. Some trivia about this. Leonardo DiCaprio was personally offered the Ewan McGregor role by Tom Hanks, and he said no. No, it's so it's like wait, it's not the starring role. It's a little weird too that it's just him and Hanks in this movie, as far as like rec- well, star, uh, sk- stellar skateboards there. But I mean, like I don't, I feel like even still as Dr. Selvig, he's not like this viable American star. Like it's basically Hanks and McGregor. So yeah, I think unless he was Robert Langdon, you're not getting DiCaprio in this movie. Uh, Tom Hanks underwent strenuous training for the introductory scene in the pool, which is like cool, but it's also like that's, you know, Tom Cruise does that for every movie. Also, get a stunt double and use CGI. You use CGI for literally fucking everything in this movie. Like they walk into the Pantheon and it's very clearly just like a room with blue screens and a CG- it's very bad CGI. Like make a CGI Tom Hanks for that one scene. I was like, what is this, Forrest Gump? How is Tom Hanks suddenly like 20 years younger? I don't understand this. So Ron Howard was going around saying that he wanted to complete the trilogy by doing the lost symbol, but then for some reason, no one apparently knows why, they scrapped that during pre-production and just did Inferno instead. So, I mean, that's a movie, that's a Robert Langdon mystery right there. Why did they not make this movie? Could you imagine Langdon versus Reacher if we got a Jack Reacher crossover with Robert Langdon? Like, they both have these series of novels that are really popular with, like, very disappointing sequels. (laughs) They need to team up or, or meet up or do an AVP style movie. I want to pitch a movie where Tom Hanks plays Robert Landon searching for the lost version of the lost symbol, which turns out to be on the back of a DVD copy of National Treasure. Now we're talking. 
Uh, Clint Eastwood wanted to direct this movie, but Ron Howard was contractually obligated to do so after making The Da Vinci Code. I think John even might have mentioned the last time that he was not thrilled with making Inferno. So I will say, Joey, and uh, you know this is also a, a point of a sort of a sore, a sore spot. Let's say that had he made this movie, he may never have made Trouble with the Curve, and so the worst movie I've ever seen, I might not have had to have seen the worst movie I've ever seen in my entire life. Because that was around the same time. Man, he's, you know, he's having trouble hitting that curve, and then just the love of a father helps him hit the curve. He does have trouble with the curve. All right, could Tom Cruise play the role of Robert Langdon in this movie? I, again, don't see why not. Him shooting a gun would seem much more natural. Him saving the world would seem much more natural. We've already established that Tom Hanks does not really matter in the solving of this crime. Anybody could. I mean... You, we could all do it. He didn't even need to be a character in this movie. Like, that's what it came down to. Like, this is true. <laughs> I don't know. It's so true. Now, a bigger or more important question, I guess, that to that point, Mike, is he still America's dad? Is someone who is irrelevant in his own vehicle, is he the Jerry of this family? I mean, that's most of American fathers, right? No, <laughs> no, no just kidding. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I want to know what Mike had before this episode. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Lots of coffee. But is he still America's dad? I'm still waiting for an answer. No, I don't think so. No, because he writes okay. bullshit books about bullshit things. And then he just, you know, two movies in a row. It's like, hey, aren't you this best-selling author? You want to come solve a crime? Like, no one's asking Stephen King to, like, go on ghost hunters and shit. But that's what it would be like. Like, get Stephen King to be a paranormal activity guy. And it's like. Why? Because he writes supernatural horror? Okay, so now, the Tom Hanks Awards, the Woodies, the best and the worst of Tom Hanks' career, best film, worst film, most fun, bad film. Is this any of them? I Knowing that Inferno is apparently worse, it's definitely not best, is this worst or is this best of the worst? Or is this neither? I don't know that you guys are going to think Inferno is worse than this, though. I, like, I, I, I'm surprised by how much you hate it. I get it. My bar is much differently set than yours is, but like, you might like Inferno more. I don't know. It's not like demonstrably way worse. I don't know if Jess agrees with this. Do not brace us or warn us or build us up for this next movie because it failed miserably for this one. And I don't <laughs> want to know anything other than just the abject fear I'm going to have going into Inferno when we get to that. I don't think this is the worst. I think I should have approached this more as a best of the worst situation when I saw the antimatter stuff. Like, I think at that point, my brain clicked in the wrong direction where it should have gone best of the worst. But instead, like something went off in my head and like got angry instead this time. There might be merit to being best of the worst, not this screening. If I ever come across it again and end up watching it for whatever reason, I'll try and consider that. Uh, but I don't think it gets there. Here's the weirdest thing. Like, even the way, like, I've been behaving all night, like, there's bones here to a good movie. And so, like, it's not the worst the worst. Like, I do like this more than Da Vinci Code. If I had to, like, choose, if someone had a gun to my head, I would definitely watch this again before that. Yeah. Okay. So, none of these? Right. Yeah. No, I don't know. None. Okay. Best, oh, oh God, best Hank's role, worst Hank's role. Are we going to put Robert, do we have, I mean, I think we could put Robert Langdon in worst Hank's role, right? Yeah. The Da Vinci Code trilogy. Best ensemble, no. Best fight, no. Best dance scene, no. Best party scene, no. Best outfit wardrobe, no. Best death, no. Best line, no. Best freak out, no. Best soundtrack, best or worst Hank's love story, no. Best non-Hank's actor. Yes, are you fucking kidding me? This is a terrible love story. No, but they don't have a love story. In the books, they do. In the movies, they don't. Yes, they do. It's, you're missing all of this, Joey. Every time he's with one of these girls in this mo these movies, Audrey Tauto stand-in, it's a love story. The whole thing with them, like, walking, like, pretending they're newlyweds in Rome and, like, holding hands and shit, that really, really, really vanilla tension is a love story, and it's a bad one, and it needs to be. I didn't even pick up on that. Like, that's insane. I didn't even think they knew each other by the end of this movie. Like, did they get each other's name? Like, it's wild. I'm not sure I got their names. Yeah. Vittoria Vetra. She's named after some model or some Italian actress or something. That's the only reason I read about it. And then best non-Hanks actor, male or female, no, right? I mean, we're not going to give Ewan McGregor credit for this. So the only thing we nominated this movie for is worst role for the franchise. So, cool. Fair. All right. All right, Mike. Also today... Coming out on the Cruise Club feed, now that Fridays are doubly for fun, we've got a movie that is a little better than this, 
spoiler alert, my favorite Tom Cruise movie, Mission Impossible Fallout, out today. I can't imagine somebody who subscribes to both these podcasts looking at Angels and Demons on the one hand and looking at Mission Impossible Fallout on the other hand, where like, you and me and Zach like couldn't stop gushing about that movie. We should do an extra episode on it. I'm ready to do a second episode on Fallout if you want. There was a video that I was rewatching recently that was like the best shots, the best film shots of the decade. And the first one was the Halo jump. And I was like, oh, I could watch that movie again right now, like immediately right now. Boy, oh boy. Next week, though, we are back to Good Hanks. Thank you. Finally, Toy Story 3. Oh, it's so, man, it's what a relief that's going to be. It's just like a palate cleansing, just like the best type possible. And then also next week, we have our Tom Cruise Award nomination. So next Friday, as you're listening to this, you can go to cageclub.me slash bracket. And whether or not you listen to Cruise Club, you can go there and vote on your favorite, the best and the worst of Tom Cruise podcasts of his films of everything he's been in. So cageclub.me slash bracket for the Tom Cruise Award nominations, the Cruises. But Toy Story 3 next week, Mission Impossible Fallout today. Very good stuff. John, thank you so much for joining us. If you want to tell people a little bit about Hard to Believe, once again, we've dropped the Da Vinci Code episode. I'm assuming we're going to do the same thing here as a bonus in that feed. But please, if people don't know about your podcast yet, enlighten them as to what you do. The podcast is called Hard to Believe. We talk about sort of esoteric things concerning religion and history and conspiracy theories and how it intersects with popular culture. It's kind of hard to explain, but it's hard to believe. That's that's okay. You can check it out on Stitcher and Spotify and Apple Tunes or whatever it's called these days, Cage Club website, and it's every other Wednesday. And Montez, you were on a recent episode, so if you want to catch more Montez, you can go on to Hard to Believe and get the Ninth Legion, the Centurion episode. But Montez, what else do you have going on? What do you want to plug? Where can people find you online? I have this little website, Unicorn Musings. It basically is, I sometimes get very angry like like Mike and John have here, but basically it's just, it just me saying, hey, don't waste your time on this movie or waste your time. It's up to you. I like to tell people whether or not I cried. And apparently I cry in movies a lot. So Do you I cry in this one? I didn't cry in this one. Um, okay. I, I probably should have um, because I spent four and a half hours of my life in the past two days watching this fucking movie. That's a lot of time. That is it's, a lot of time. It's a lot of time. It's so much time. Well, for all things Hanks for the Memories and all 27 shows in the network, you can go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Email us, hanks at cageclub.me. Like I said, come back next week for Toy Story 3. Check out the Cruise Club episode today of Mission Impossible Fallout. Also, new episodes of Too Fast, Too Forever and High School Slumber Party today, so go check those out. You know, John had a new episode come out two days ago, so check that out as well. Cageclub.me or wherever you find podcasts for all 27 of our shows. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that was John Brooks and Jess Collins. We'll see you next time right here on Hanks for the Memories. threat.